everyone to our afternoon service. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are once more gathered in this house of worship and praise and prayer to acknowledge thy existence in our worship of thee as we come to open thy word and to look into it and to recognize that from it, Father, we find life and truth and direction for our lives. And thou knowest, Father, how much we are in need continually of thy word to sustain us. And so we ask thee, Father, bless the word that is before us this afternoon. Speak to every heart that's here. And not only, Father, to us that are present, but also to those that were unable to be here, who desire to be part of this fellowship, but are hindered for various reasons. Bless them as well. Visit them as thou art visiting us this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to read from the 14th chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 14. The fool had said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They're all gone aside. They were altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat, up, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people... Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. I have read the entire chapter. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth righteous or good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. 
They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. Filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This is a, a very strong statement made against humanity, against the creation of God, against man. And it speaks to the state of man as we know it today and as man has been throughout the ages. It tells us here that, first of all, there is a statement made in the heart of man that man comes to a point in his life, either through recognition of the circumstances around him, and he makes a statement in his heart about what he sees. Unfortunately, one of those statements is that there is no God. And that statement allows, God, allows man, I should say, um, the liberty or the freedom to then go on living according to his will, his ways, according to what he sees to be true. The Bible tells us that here, as we've read, that God is looking from heaven and he looks to see if there is anyone that actually looks after God, that seeks after God, that looks to do good. And God proclaims that in that pursuit of looking and scouring the surface of the earth, searching the hearts of man, he finds that there is none. None that doeth good, no, not one. Not one that seeks the face of God. Now, if we were to stop here, we would say that this is a very, very dark and depressing and discouraging statement. It would almost seem as if God fails to recognize many other things that go on in the life of man. And rather, God has condensed the, the life of man as a, as a general observation and, and, and ends and concludes that that. Regardless of the many things that describe man's activities in, in his life, God sums it up as that there is no, no one that's good, no one that is really seeking his face, no, not one. But we have the benefit of the rest of the scripture, and we can take this statement in the context of the full picture that we have so that we understand what God means by this statement. In no way do we want to belittle the significance of this statement. We don't want to diminish the truth of this statement and the factual accurateness of this statement. It is accurate. It is an accurate depiction of the state of man before he comes to know God. And that's important. Before he comes to know God. And that is a difficult one. So the Bible tells us here that, that when God looks down from heaven, from his position, from his vantage point, from his perspective, and God, whom we understand as the one who created all things, having perfect knowledge, understanding things much better than we can ever understand, in our finite mind, even though we can see that, that man in his, in his capacity today, his ability to generate knowledge. And it's interesting, as I, was, as I thought about the message that was proclaimed from this pulpit this morning, the Edison light bulb, and 
I don't know how many of you know the, the history of the, of the light bulb and how, how Edison brought that together with, with support, um, financial support from J.P. Morgan. And uh, it's, it's quite an interesting story. So unfortunately, when he made that, when Brother Wurtz made that statement, my mind wandered off to the American history of J.P. Morgan and, and Edison. But it's, ama- it's amazing how man now, we, we, can, we, can take, we can take the books that we have in high school and in university and the science, and, and we, now, we now teach it as a common knowledge. We teach electricity and, and, the, and the flow of current through a very thin filament, generating heat, generating photons as electrons uh, are energized, move from a higher orbital down to a lower orbital and release a packet of energy called a photon. We teach this as a basic natural knowledge, whereas 100 years ago that was, that was just cutting edge. It was only known by a few select. And today, it's common. We can understand the, the, the proliferation of knowledge at a highly scientific level today has never, ever been before. And it's completely accessible to all. Remarkable, really. When you stand back, we live in a remarkable age. In fact, we are living at a time like the Tower of Babel, that there is nothing that would restrain man from achieving his ultimate goals unless God would step in. And when God looks at man in that condition, he sees that man has deviated from the path that would have led him to understand his maker to one where man pursues knowledge and what knowledge brings and fails to come to grips with God. And ultimately, the pursuit of knowledge does not, gender, does not render man good. It says here, there is none that is good. None that is seeking God. The Bible tells us that God revealed himself to man. There are three primary conditions that we can look to that tells us that God made himself known to man. In Romans chapter 1, we often read this chapter. In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the word here, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, is who suppress the truth, who, who, who hold down. So God... His wrath will one day, and it has been revealed, but one, one day will be decisively revealed against humanity, particularly against the section or sector of humanity that knowing God at one point in their lives have chosen to suppress that knowledge and have substituted that with unrighteousness, evil. And it says here that because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it unto them. God, in other words, has revealed his knowledge to mankind. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. For the invisible things of God, and the Bible here in, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Romans says, the invisible things of God 
are his eternal power and Godhead. The attributes and the characteristics of God are that he has eternal power and that he is God. And this God has a Godhead in the sense that it is made of the Holy Spirit, his Son, and God the Father, that it is in this supreme position of creator, maker, provider, sustainer. This eternal power has been made known. The invisible things of God, which are these things, have been made known to man and are clearly understood by the things that are made. So God has allowed man to ponder his existence by examining his creation. That's a very simple way of putting it. In other words, we can come to know or we can come to a point in our lives through pursuit of knowledge. Through pursuit of knowledge, we can come, if we examine our existence, our surrounding, our nature, the nature around us, we can come to see the complexity of nature and that in itself will prompt us to to wonder about who put this together. And the Bible tells us here that this knowledge God made known to man. And if you think about it, if you ever spend time looking at science and the, the, the incredible complexity and the incredible detail of science, particularly in biology, but in anything, in, in natural science, in physical science, when you look at that, and you look at how man has put together theories, mathematical theories, to explain his physical world around him, the laws that he's devised, you realize that it has such order. It has such um, uh, repeatability. We, we talk about, we talk about long-term order. When we look at a, a, a crystal structure in, in a metal, we say that it has long-term order as opposed to a disorder, meaning that the crystal structure can be repeated over lengths, uh, uh, noticeable and marginal, uh, measurable lengths. The, the essence of the crystal is repeated over and over again. And we say that's order. And we, we can have a response and say, that's amazing. And then we can take that thought and say, well, where did it come from? You know, it's so amazing to our human understanding. And so there, you, can, you can deduce that man can have a, a, a natural response to what he observes in nature and, and attribute the awesomeness or the wonder of nature to a creator. Or he can deny the existence of a creator and he can attribute the wonder of his observation of nature and attribute it to absolutely nothing except chance. Isn't that kind of odd? That in our everyday vocabulary, and I'm talking about non-Christians, we use words like wonderful, awesome, incredible. And the word really incredible means not believable. We use that kind of vocabulary every day when we, when we, when we encounter something that is, that is really amazing. And yet, we can draw the following breath and exhale that following breath and not attribute a supernatural attribute to that, to that observation. Isn't that amazing? 
Why would we naturally come to that conclusion? The truth is, we don't naturally come to that conclusion. It is not a natural conclusion. And that's what the scripture is saying here. God has shown this and made it plain to man. It is not a natural conclusion for man to come to know wonder and amazement and not naturally attribute it to something supernatural. It takes as an effort to attribute that to something else. And that is, as the Bible describes here in verse 18, us holding down the truth, suppressing what we know naturally inside of us to be true, to be attributable to something eternal that has a Godhead. So God created heaven and earth he created the wonders in the skies as a sign for man and he created the wonder of earth the plant life and everything around us and the biological existence and he gave man the capacity to pursue knowledge and to discover him through his nature but that's not all god did and we see that in that first revelation Man makes a choice. He makes a choice not to. He makes a choice willingly not to attribute the sensation experience when we experience wonder to God, but to something uh, immaterial, something that has no spiritual, and I use the word spiritual here, but no spiritual origin to the word wonder, amazement, and incredible. So in that condition, man can retire the concept of God. And it was in the 1700s and 1800s when philosophers uh, came to that point where they concluded that God is dead. It was a convenient conclusion. Because the conclusion that God is dead from a philosophical perspective then allowed man the freedom to pursue whatever he, and he wanted to pursue without having to have this thing in the back of his mind, this nagging feeling that, 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 that if God exists, then clearly God doesn't exist in, in the distance and is, is um, impersonal, but rather he is personal. He is very near. He's very near, in fact, to me and to us. And that nearness demands that we know what God's will is. So it was convenient for man to declare philosophically um, that God is dead. The problem with that conclusion, besides the obvious, is that it opened up a position of despair. In other words, if, if we have concluded that at one point in time, that God is, and that God is love, as we heard this morning, and that God is good, and that the, the, the origin of good is from God, then we have a problem. Because in this world, in our physical and natural experiment in this world, we also observe evil. We also experience it firsthand. There are people that are evil, there are people that, 
that don't have a problem, you know, <clears throat> inflicting injury and harm to another being. And so we have a, we're in a little bit of a dilemma when we eliminate the origin of good and then we have the evidence of evil. And one philosopher concluded, immediately after concluding that God is dead, that this conclusion is going to create a society, a society eventually that will have a lot of problems. Now, God knew that. And while man chose to reject and assign an attribute of, of, of the spiritual to the wonders he witnessed, even if the wonders of love is part of that observation, um, God knew that there is two more things that he would introduce into the world in order to bring our attention back to him. God didn't care that the leading European philosophers in the 1800s would conclude that God is dead. That to him was immaterial. And he introduced much earlier on, and that's one of the reasons why um, people sought to, to, to rid themselves of God, God introduced the law. He introduced the Mosaic law in the children of Israel, uh, partly because God wanted to define for the children of Israel what he defined as right, what he defined as righteous, what were the, the boundaries of man's behavior that God, that God uh, would set for him, and that if the nation of Israel would live out the law, that they would be a testimony to the rest of the world. God wanted to use Israel as a testimony to the rest of the world of what it meant to be righteous and what it meant to serve God. But of course, as we know from history, from the Old Testament, that the law was a difficult taskmaster for the children of Israel. And rather than seeking the heart of God and understanding what was behind the law, the Bible tells us the children of Israel sought to, to, to establish their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of God. And they took the law... And they completely misapplied it in the sense that, that they attributed righteousness as a, a uh, um, just like in algebra, uh, you have a, a domain and you have a, a range. You have a function where you have an input and you have an output. My input is the works of the law. The output is I have righteousness, therefore. And God said, no, no, that's, that's not what I meant. And, and here... God said, I'm going to introduce the concept of sin. I'm going to introduce the concept of sin. I've given man, in, in my creation of man, I've given each person, and we had this discussion a little bit at lunchtime, I've, I've, given, I've put into every man and woman a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong. And that moral compass guides us when we encounter situations that we feel, we feel that we're not right, that give us a sense of unease, that make us feel guilty, that make us sense that something is amiss. Now we know that 
the moral compass, the conscience that God gave us, can be conditioned. And as the adage goes that, you know, give me a child under the age of three and I will make him a communist for life. You can, through environmental factors, you can condition a conscience. And so God knew that even the moral compass that he gave us would not be sufficient to guide man back to God. And so he had to give us the law. He had to give us the definition of sin. And we've talked about this before. In Romans 6, it says, um, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So God introduced the law, and in it he introduced the definition of sin. And the Bible tells us that sin was always there. The actions of sin that worked in our members, in our body, were always there prior to the law. But they became alive. It says here, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, in other words, seizing the opportunity that now it was fully defined in my conscience, so that even if my conscience had been dulled by my conditioning, by my upbringing, by the things that I had experienced in life, now sin made clear to me, or the definition of sin, or, the, or law made clear to me, that, that the things I desired, and the Bible says here, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. So that, that sin, taking occasion by the commandment, seizing the opportunity by the law, worked in me all manner of evil desires. They were always there. They were always there. But the thing is that sin revived and I died. All of a sudden, I now became aware, without excuse, when my moral compass was dull and was, was already misaligned and was unable to give me the direction I needed, law and sin was redefined for me and it revived in my life. It became alive, and it seized the opportunity where? In my mind and in my heart to tell me I was a sinner. That's the second condition. So man has to deal with that second condition. And of course, we see in society today that man wants to get rid of that conscience. It, it tried so hard with conditioning that you know you can alter your moral compass you can you can be raised in an environment where you can do things without feeling a sense of guilt but when god now defines for us what is really sin conscience doesn't really matter anymore because what matters is the truth what matters is the truth and so now we have to deal with that truth and we see today in our society that man wants to change that truth man wants, wants to change what the Bible declares to be evil as a manner of lifestyle. That 
everyone has a right to, or whatever it is. And we see that more and more in our society. And it is a consequence of defining God as dead. It's a consequence of removing Christianity. And I'm not saying religion, because in fact, man is a very religious person. Man is inherently religious, but not in the sense that we think of, not in a traditional sense. But, but man wants to remove Christianity out of society because it is the last stop. It is the last barrier that frees man, that gives man the complete freedom to do as he wishes without any sense of guilt. But God didn't leave it there. Man rejected the evidence of God in creation. Man rejects the, the redefinition of sin in his conscience through the law. And then there's the last thing. In that state, man would be most miserable. There would be no hope whatsoever. In that state, there would be no hope. And the last thing is God closes the loop in that knowledge. And he introduces Jesus Christ. He introduces the one that closes the loop and says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one that takes away the sin. He is the one that takes away the sin. He is the one that realigns our moral compass through his spirit. Our spirit is revived. The spirit of man is revived in that transformation that we call conversion. And God realigns that compass that our understanding is no longer darkened. It is now clear. We understand truth for what it is. God didn't just leave man suppressing the truth. God didn't leave just man rejecting the law and the condemnation that came with the law. God gave man hope in, in his son, in the person of Jesus Christ. Under those three conditions, one would have to wonder, how then can man reject that evidence? It's not a rejection that comes loosely. I tell you, it is impossible if you have sat down with any individual, and I really don't, it doesn't really matter to me what the individual, who the individual is, what his background or her background is, but if you have a rational discussion with anyone, and you bring those three points across, you cannot lightly walk away from them. You cannot lightly, rationally walk away from them. You would have to weigh them, and you'd have to make a conscious decision to reject, to reject those three points. So when God looks down from heaven, and he wants, and he seeks, he seeks to see if there is anyone that would seek him, that would seek his face, that would want him. This reminds me of Psalm 27, a psalm of David. David says, Hear, O Lord, verse 7, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidst, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Now there are 
If you look at that verse, verse 8, when thou says, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. The, the first part of that verse, when thou says, that condition is actually in italics. It's an interpretation by the writers, by the ones who translated this into the English from, from, the, from the, the Hebrew. And there is much discussion about what exactly, how exactly to phrase verse 8, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And we can look at this from various angles, but the point is, something prompts man to seek something. We don't just live in a vacuum. We don't just make motions in our lives without meaning. Ultimately, there is a sense of seeking And sometimes we don't understand what that seeking is. We don't know what that seeking is. But God is seeking us at the same time. And he is prompting us. He does this through the experiences in life. He does this through his, explicitly through the word of God, like we heard this afternoon. That that God reveals himself in nature. He He has revived our conscience through the knowledge of sin. And he provides a realignment to that conscience and a deliverance from despair by his son, Jesus Christ. He has explicitly revealed that to our heart. And then the question is, is the heart going to seek him? God seeks us, and yet he wants us to seek his face. And the psalmist is saying that, ultimately, my heart said unto thee, to God, God Thy face I will seek. That takes humility. It really does. It takes pride to walk away from this. It takes humility to accept it. May the Lord provide whatever is lacking. Amen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while we have the opportunity, it's good that we proclaim that from the pulpit. We are such a small minority in this city and in the country. We're just really a small group here. And yet we believe that the things that we hold are are the words of life. We believe, we as a congregation believe, and I often wonder how people that come to our services that do, that, are, that do not know God, how they perceive the communication that comes from the pulpit. Because we believe that this is the truth, the absolute truth, meaning that there is nothing else that would in any way complement or add to what we believe. We believe the Bible in its entirety is the inspired word of God the roadmap, the guide for man. We believe this is the truth, and we come together to strengthen ourselves in this truth. But we come here and also to proclaim the truth, that those who do not know God can listen to the arguments. And today's the arguments have to be very clear. They have to be founded on, dare I say, rational thinking. We have to express the truth, and it has to go forth, because the challenges of today are many, especially for our young people. 
There are many. And we need to be able to communicate that truth. It is my hope that that when we come together, we recognize the preciousness of our time together, the truth that comes in the fellowship, and that we take the opportunity to encourage one another because we are living in very difficult times, and it's going to become much more difficult. It's going to become much more difficult. May the Lord bless his word. May we be encouraged by what we've heard today. This concludes our service. Amen.